This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 36 for April 20th, 2006. One dozen questions. Bandwidth for the Twit Network is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. Yes, it's time once again to plumb the depths of the dark side of the net. Security, viruses, spyware, with the man who invented the term spyware, who coined it, who first discovered it, Mr. Steve Gibson. Hello, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be back. We've been having so much fun. I mean, here we are in uh, our 36th episode. Wow. We, I know. It's got <laughs> more than half a year of uh, talking about uh, security issues, sometimes timely, but a lot of times really kind of education. Uh, we've just... Completed a big series on crypto, which has been great. Yep, and in fact, next week we're going to talk about the applications, all of the ways those five basic building blocks of cryptography can be assembled in order to achieve the things that people really need to get done uh, with securing on the net. But as usual, uh, on our every fourth episode, our Modulus 4 episodes, as we call them, uh, since this is 36, we answer your questions uh, and uh, Steve's got a lot. We got a dozen, a, 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 an even dozen questions to actually really a baker's dozen, because like most good programmers, you start with question zero. <laughs> <laughs> and that's James from Auckland, New Zealand, who wrote to us with a real world WPA cracking experience. WPA is the encryption technology you recommend for Wi-Fi base stations. Yep. In fact, you said it's the only safe way to protect your Wi-Fi. But James said this morning, I'll try. I won't do this in a in a. Kiwi accent. I'll, I'll leave that to your imagination. This morning at a security seminar I attended, there was a demonstration on cracking a WPA pre-shared key, which took me a bit by surprise. I remember you were talking about WPA and how it was virtually unbreakable, provided a strong key was used. What I didn't know was how easy it was, with the right knowledge, to brute force a weak PSK, pre-shared key. For this demonstration, the presenter used Linux and a few freeware tools like Kismet, AirPlay, Ethereal, and Cowpatty. I love that name. (laughs) He showed us how it's possible to capture data from the four-way handshake at the start of a session by sending 12 packets masquerading as the originating from the access point to a station that basically blips the connection for a fraction of a second, causing the station to reinitiate, and this is the key, the four-way handshake. They exchanged EPOL, E-A-P-O-L, packets uh, were uh, captured by Ethereal, analyzed in another program, where the pre-shared key, in this case a really dumb one, one two three four five six seven eight, was found in about get this sixty seconds. The whole process took less than five minutes. I just thought that was interesting and an uh, extension and practical demonstration as to what you were talking about uh, regarding WPA and the need for really actually good random passwords. Well, and you know James posted this, and I was delighted to see it because. It it basically says everything we talked about when we were covering our Wi-Fi stuff. That is, it, it, I mean, even mentioning that it, that a an existing connection could be in, induced to to reestablish, reauthenticate itself to the access point that would allow somebody who didn't who did, who wasn't there at the beginning to capture the credentials, and and then also how. WPA is that is WPA the you know our the, the best encryption you can get for Wi-Fi right now how WPA is prone to an offline attack and that's exactly what what James described where 
where Ethereal was used to capture that transaction and then offline the machine cranked on it and because it was such a dumb password I mean they used one two three four five six seven eight it didn't take it long to try one two three four five mm. six seven eight offline and see that the resulting credentials matched up and that allowed them then to access basically decrypt all of the conversation that, that, that they that they had been recording uh, in the past and in the future, and really two two three four five seven six eight wouldn't have been that much harder. It's just really sh- besides being non-random, it's it's really short. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and again, it's why I've got my passwords page at grc.com. If if, if people just go to grc.com/passwords, um, my server generates really really good. WPA qualified passwords and I mean you can't type them in you just got to cut and copy and paste them but you know nobody will ever get them they're they're what 64 characters long 63 actually 63 so yep. that's as long as you can be and if you have totally random 63 characters brute forcing that is next to impossible yeah, it's just not going to happen yeah Nathan Clark of uh, Allendale Michigan has been pondering public key cryptography and asks uh, after listening to Security Now 34, Steve, a couple of episodes ago, I, I don't understand why it's not possible for the private key to be inferred from the public key. I mean, why is it someone couldn't encrypt something with a public key, then try to decrypt it with every possible option? I realize it would take a long time, but is the reason it's impossible because it would take an unrealistic amount of time, or is it impossible for some other reason? That's a good no, question. I really like that question. Yeah. Um, it is absolutely possible to do that. But these public and private keys are like 1,024 bits long. I mean, they are really, really long. And it's necessary. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we're used to, as a society now, talking about the distance of galaxies and, you know, how long the universe has existed. I mean, you know, we sort of become inured to really, really large quantities. But two to the 1024 bits is an insanely large number of possible combinations and so yes it it is it would be possible as 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 nathan suggests to to try every possible private key making up private keys but i mean that you just you know you'd be dead before you made much headway at all this is pretty closely related to the previous question that it's not it's not it's randomness of course is important but really length combined with randomness is what gives you an imperviable key well in fact i think we've got a question here here today that talks a little bit about that so we're 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 on our way toward that good doug from new york writes since both of is uh, myself included, use Skype. We're using Skype right now. Yep. After several failed experiments with other clients, uh, is there? <laughs> we keep coming back. Yeah. <laughs> Skype uh, seems to work the best. We've tried a, a number of different things, including Ventrilo sounded really good, but the lag was uh, killing us. Um, Skype is just—it sounds pretty good, and there's just no lag. Anyway, he says, "Is there any truth to the fact that our bandwidth is being stolen, stolen by Skype, even when we're disconnected?" I've read reports that this is not uncommon if you're not behind in that. What about when we're behind in that? Personally, I've not noticed any slowdown in my day-to-day activities, but would I notice anything unusual? He's talking about the fact that Skype is a peer-to-peer application. Well, actually, it's a little worse than that. 
uh, Skype is peer-to-peer so that, for example, you and I have UDP Internet traffic going directly between us. But it, actually, that's because I have given Skype a fixed um Port that it could, that it can use to forward traffic through. Oh, Otherwise, should I do that too? Well, no, because you've got a more well-behaved NAT router. Oh. I've got a I've got a misbehaving NAT router, which technically is a little more secure, but it doesn't make a big difference one way or the other. But the only reason you and I are able to go direct is that I have established a a fixed port for Skype to use. What happens for most users? is and this is a this is an annoyance with Skype if they're behind some older routers for example if i hadn't done this then Skype will use someone else's copy that happens to be running and is logged into the Skype network as a forwarder this that is, is the they, so-called supernode the supernode yeah. yes and and there's no way to turn it off. There's no way to tell it in the options not to do this. It's simply, if you've got a computer not behind a NAT router, well, of course, in that case, you, you pretty much Shouldn't deserve what, what, what you're going to get, um, or, or also not behind a firewall, then that is, if you've got a machine which is able to accept unsolicited connections into Skype, the Skype network determines that, and it will use your computer and your bandwidth to forward other people's conversations. Does the whole conversation go through you or just a handshake? No, the entire conversation. Oh. And, and so the reason it doesn't work for you and me, Leo, is suddenly then we get quality degradation. Right. And basically, instead of going point to point, we're going through that third party. They didn't give us permission. And the latency of our packets is increased also. So, you know, what I liked about Google Talk was that they used their own servers in the case that they were unable to do a direct peer-to-peer connection. Skype doesn't. They use unsuspected expecting users computers but again only if you don't have a firewall or you're not behind a router if you because they can't that's the whole point they're kind of fixing a problem with people behind routers and firewalls right so the idea would be that both of us would make an outbound connection to that third party and that would allow our traffic in order to in order to go back and forth instead of doing nat traversal so when i configure uh when i set people up for uh, twit or some of the other podcasts uh, I should ask them if they're behind a router, and if they're not, I should say, get, get turn on your firewall? You really, yeah, you, you ought to make sure they're behind a router. Now, one thing you could do, Leo, that hadn't occurred to me, you might not, you know, because you and I have been talking about Skype, and you were saying that it works well with us, but you've not had some everybody. problems using not it with everybody, everybody else. Yeah. Um, if you did establish static port forwarding and assigned a port to Skype, much as I have, see, I've done it in order for you and me right. to have a direct connection, that would guarantee that you had a direct connection with anybody else who you were Skyping with. So I should probably do and it's something i can do locally that would fix uh, everything uh, generally for everybody else yeah, yeah. is that yeah, in the uh, is that in the advanced uh, where is that uh it's in there i'll have to find it so i can, oh it, uh, probably under connection yeah there it is so by default it uses port 42868 it looks like but i could change that you definitely don't want to use the default Right. You uh, never want to, it says here use port 80 and 443 as alternatives for incoming connection yeah that's something different that's uh, that's for secure 
that's yeah uh, so for what it's worth if we do have people who are using skype who are finding that it, the quality is less than you for example you and i get leo they could establish static port forwarding um but they're not going to want to leave skype running all the time right. or it'll they'll find that it ends up being a server for other people oh so if you use okay but but that's only because they don't have a router if you use static port forwarding as you are steve that doesn't mean you're getting used I don't know because I don't. I never leave it running. I start it. <laughs> You'll never you find out. <laughs> yep. Well, that's good. I mean, it's not a security issue as long as Skype is secure. And uh, but uh, it's something something good to know. Yeah. Uh, and I think I'm going to change. Uh, so, uh, is there a port you recommend? I guess it doesn't really matter. I could use. I, I, we can't say it on the air. Right. We won't say what you're using. The whole the whole point is you generate some random number right. greater than ten twenty four, less than six five five three five. Pick it and 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 set up port forwarding, and I bet you that really solves your Skype problem hmm. with other people. Hmm. And I don't have to tell you ahead of time. It, it, you'll, I, I don't ever want to know. <laughs> and I don't want to know yours either. So there. I mean, I I I could sniff our traffic, and I would see which well, well, port it was we, going. How to. do we then make a connection? Same way, it just figures it all out. It does. It go, that goes through some server, the Skype yes. server. Okay. Yeah, so. there, there is there is the, the you know we're, we're both logged on to a server in yes. order for this thing to all work. And the central server knows our unique weirdo ports, and it handles that. Yep. Ah, very interesting. Jay Martin, Florence, Alabama, asks. I have a question about the time it takes to decrypt various bit encryptions. You give a certain amount of time for how long it would take to brute force decrypt a password. My question is. Would your estimation of time consider that the actual successful password decryption is the last one tried? I mean, what if by chance the brute force decryption utility chose the correct password in the first short period into the process? Which is why you don't use one 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 as a password. I understand this is still real strong security, but should this not be considered? I'm not sure. What is he asking? I'm not sure what he's well, asking. Well, it was really interesting, and it's a very good point. It's that you know we're dealing with statistics, and the idea was. When we have a certain bit length, then we're going to be trying different, for example, using symmetric encryption. We have a 128-bit key. Well, one of those 128-bit combinations is the right key, only one of them. So he, he was saying, what if you hit that right off the bat? What if you guessed it? What if you guessed right? And he's exactly right. You would crack it in a heartbeat. But but people don't try because they figure, well, chances are it's not going to be the first one or the second or the third or the hundred thousandth or the millionth. And, and again, there are, we, even though we talk, we would talk very glibly about 128 bits, if you raise two to the 128 power, that's how many possible combinations there are. The proper key is, in fact, hiding amid all of those so it is there somewhere but it's the fact that the chance of guessing it is so vanishingly small that everyone considers this to be safe people don't spend time looking for needles in haystacks even though they might just happen to look right at it it's a very small needle or very large haystack (laughs) they look um i suppose though it means you probably wouldn't want zero 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 128 zeros would not be a good password um, but you don't I don't know. I don't think anyone would start. At, I don't know how, like what algorithm you would choose. Okay, I just did the math here. We're talking three point four times ten to the thirty eight. <laughs> wow. I mean three wow. comma and you know four and then thirty seven zeros. That's how many there are. So, assuming that we've just chosen one at random, you know, good luck brute forcing all of those. <laughs> 
Although, uh, as you pointed out in last week in the birthday thing, I mean, the chances are that it, it's not the last number you'd try. It's somewhere in the middle of there, right? Right. You don't have to try them all. You, you would normally have to try half of them. Right. In order, in order to get there. John Whiting of Rothertham, Rothertham, Yorkshire. Let's just say Yorkshire, UK, asks, I started to research digital IDs, uh, regular uh, radio experiment with an email signing and encryption between my friends and me. Trouble is... See, see Leo, you got people doing this Good, now. good. Yeah. Uh, trouble is you have to register and pay for most IDs. Mm, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll address that. Seems Komodo is free for one year. Can I just manufacture my own keys to share and use with friends and relatives? Ooh, 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 this brings up a really, this brings up a whole issue of trust. That's fascinating. Would I, I put use this a, in here. I put this in here for you, Leo. Yeah, would I use a key generator like your perfect password generator? Are there other free, reliable digital ID services out there? This one's yours. <laughs> uh, well, when you install programs like PGP, which is free, there's a free version. I, I recommend... Uh, the GNU Privacy Guard, um, which is gnupg.org, uh, that's absolutely free and open source. It generates a key, but he raises a very important issue, which is you only you at this point have asserted that this is your key. Uh, right. And it's, you know, I could, I could create a key that said Steve Gibson and assert that that's your key. So the way that we make these keys reliable is through uh, something called signing or trust. It's the, it's the chain of trust. In fact, there are people who have, and from time to time you might go to one of these PGP key signing parties where they'll go and you'll be there with your driver's license or your passport or some ID and, and they'll sign your keys. And of course, the more people who have signed your key to say, yes, I, I know this is John and this is his key, um, the more trusted your key will be. And of course, in, in this mode, it's, it's called a web of trust. Web of trust, that's right, yeah. Because, because we have a whole bunch of people, and the idea being that you know, we, we build up a web of trust because everyone has, a, has proven their identity to each other in a large network, and so that, that as a network, it carries some weight, as opposed to, for example, buying a credential from, from Komodo, for example, as he cites, where, where then you, you are going through some some process to prove that you are who you are. That's what they call third-party signing, a trusted third-party signing. Exactly, and that's what we'll be talking about next week. And that, that does cost you generally, although Thought, for a while, until Thought was bought by Verisign, offered free uh, email certificates, and I imagine yep. you can still get free email certificates somewhere. And, and that one is verified in the sense that they mail you the certificate, and you have to validate that, you know, you have to say, yes, I got this mail, I got it at this address. That at least validates that that address is uh, yours, although, I mean, it's, it's still conceivable that somebody could spoof it to some sort of man-in-the-middle attack, intercept your email, and say, yes, I got that at that address. So really, I mean, it's, it's only slightly more trusted. If you get a key from the, uh, the key servers, uh, you'll, there'll be a degree of trust in there. And you can, by the way, if you, if you correspond with somebody, you can, uh, and you know it's them, you know, you're, you're pretty sure it's them, you can sign their key. You can go online and sign their key and say, yes, I... You know, I, I want to validate that I know this is this is uh, 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 who it says it is, and so that's right. that's there, there's a trust database. I, you know, I think it's a really beautiful system, but that is a flaw, isn't it? Yes, somewhere ultimately, no matter how far back you go, somewhere there's something you are relying on. Right. So, for, you know, even for for example, web certificates, when when we get SSL certificates in order to establish secure web communications. And I have to do this every two years for, for example, GRC in order to in order to allow people to to connect securely to my server. 
um, I'm going through some hoops. They they check my my Dunham Bradstreet uh, uh, phone, fax, address. You know, I mean, there is some process that I go through to assert that I am Steve Gibson, mm-hmm. Gibson Research Corporation, GRC.com. Then I get this this this, this certificate, but you know. It's it's not an absolutely foolproof process. So at some level, something needs to be trusted. Yeah. And this is why I don't update my key or change my key frequently, because if somebody, you know, by now I've been using my key long enough, it's it's signed by a lot of people. So, you know, it's right. You know, it's fairly trusted. Vincent Ragosta, writing from Pittsburgh, PA, wonders, why are there non-routable IP addresses? Why, why, why in the middle of my trace route output? In fact, how could it get there? Does this indicate my ISP is performing NAT routing? If the ISP is performing NAT routing, how am I routing? How am I able to run servers that are accessible from the Internet? So I guess he's doing a trace route and he's seeing things like 10. Dot or 192.168 addresses. Right, right. And in fact, I've seen that myself. Um, if I've done trace routing through my Cox cable modem connection, I'll see a few IPs that are public, and suddenly it like falls into this 10-dot space where it goes you know, maybe five or six hops into 10-dot, hmm. and then it comes back out in, into the public space. Um, this is commonly done by by large ISPs because they don't want to burn up or consume their public IP space. Those public IPs are the only way that that they're able to offer those IPs. So if if a if an ISP's got lots of network gear internally, they may use non-routable IPs, you know, the 10 dot or 172 or 192.168 space just in order to like identify their routers internally to each other so they're able to move traffic among them but once the the, the traffic then crosses back out into the public space of course it 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 returns to a a well-known public IP so this doesn't does not mean that the ISP is necessarily using NAT routing. It it doesn't mean that they're not for sure. But but it, what it really is is it's just a way for the ISP to be be conserving their use of what is a relatively scarce resource, namely public IPs. They don't yeah. want to burn them up on their own equipment. They want to make them available to their customers. But how does it route if it's this uh, private address? Well, the idea is that the the equipment inside has routing oh, tables. it knows. That exactly. It knows, hey, we're sending this off to our Al- Albany office or off to our San Francisco office, and you know that's a 10-dot something, and San Francisco is a 10-dot something else. So, so the the internal routing tables know how to get the packets within their internal space back, you know, like toward their destination, and at which point the packets then then cross into the outside world. Mm, okay, that makes sense. Does it? Uh, he, he asks, "How am I able to run servers?" Well, that's not an issue because the traffic just their 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 local routers are doing the handoff. Right, and in fact, we may, may remember that four weeks ago we did answer a question similar to this. Some guy was had his ISP delivering private IP space to him, 192.168, and he wanted to run a router, but he, I mean, a server, excuse me, but he couldn't because he didn't have a public IP from his ISP. His ISP actually had him behind their own big NAT router, and I have seen this before, but but that is not the case um, uh, if an ISP is simply using private IP space internally, and many do. 
Robin uh, Robertson of Roanoke, Virginia asks, I'm curious about logmein.com. If I'm at a public Wi-Fi hotspot and use my laptop to access my home desktop via logmein, which is a remote access solution, yep. uh, then surf the Internet through my desktop, am I safe? I'm probably confused, but I think their take on UDP is, is the opposite of what I heard you discuss in security now. Okay, well, log, log me in is a little bit like go to my PC in that it is it, it establishes a secure connection to to their servers, and then they will connect to something that you've got running at home. So, so essentially, you're you're securely connecting to them. And your home system is is also connecting to them, and so the log me in service, very much like go to my PC, creates this bridge that allows you from, for example, a, a public Wi-Fi spot to connect to your home desktop. So, the question: Am I secure? Well, you're secure in your traffic out of the danger zone which is the public wi-fi hotspot or for example if you were if you you were using log me in in a hotel to, to get to the log me in servers um you are and, and that's really what you're trying to achieve with this you're trying to get your traffic out of an area where it is in danger now if you then connect to your home system and use the internet from there well then your your traffic is unencrypted as as normal internet traffic is, for example, you know, standard pop or IMAP mail and web surfing and so forth, unless you are using um, an SSL connection. So, so it's sort of a, a combination answer. The, the, the area of greatest danger where you're in Wi-Fi or hotel in any kind of a public setting, that's encrypted and so you're safe. But in general, once you've left that encrypted tunnel, then your traffic is available just like everyone's is on the Internet. So you're exactly as safe as you would be at home. That, that says it in what? Five words, yes. <laughs> no more, no less. John in Australia believes that his SSL connections are not safe. Uh-oh. He says, I've, I've made, had the misfortune to be hijacked through crypto. My details were grabbed, and when I see an encrypted page, the hackers also see what I am seeing. Any suggestions on how they're doing it? I've tried using XP and Linux, and it still happens. Perplexed, since you say it can't be done. Now, I get variations of this question all the time on my radio show. Um, and I think it's just people who are confused. I, I, I put this in here because I, I, too, have seen the question, and... Uh, and I'm confused by the question. Um, he says he's used both XP and Linux, and it still happens. It, it, unfortunately, we don't know exactly what it is. He says that hackers are able to see what he sees. So I don't know how my, he would know that. Well, exactly. So we, what we would really ask is, what are the symptoms of, of this? Yeah, my first thought was that if there was something evil installed on his machine, right. then, for example, a, key, a, a, a keystroke sniffer or something running on the machine, then that would be a way of there being a problem. The fact that he says he's tried it with Windows and Linux, though, because he's he's got this cross-platform addition, that make, makes me more skeptical about something evil going on. The fact is, as far as anyone knows, 
SSL connections are themselves really secure. If you're being spied upon, it's not because they're cracking into that connection. Now, there is an exception, though, which is the other reason I put this question in here today, because when you connect to a remote server, you are accepting the credentials of the server which has been signed by someone who signed their certificate, like we were talking about briefly before, about VeriSign, for example, signing GRC's certificate. Some corporations do want to proxy and filter and literally basically decrypt and be able to read their employees' encrypted traffic. So what they do is they run a proxy server in their corporate environment which has a certificate and every browser in the company has been told to trust that certificate. So essentially, the encrypted traffic is decrypted at the Ooh. corporate border. Yes. That's it's, sneaky. It's decrypted at the corporate border and, and then uh, essentially filtered, proxied, checked for spyware, or even for naughty content. I mean, they could do anything they want to once they've got your connection decrypted. Then it is re-encrypted using a certificate that every corporate browser has been has been deliberately installed with in order for the browser not to complain. So employees may believe they have encrypted and secure SSL connections when in fact it is being decrypted in, you know, en route essentially and, you know, by their by their corporate firewall or IT staff or proxy server for whatever corporate reasons. Wow, is that sneaky? <laughs> oh, wow. Um and, and I, you know, it's hard to tell what he's talking about. He maybe have been fished, and in that case, you know, it's you, you're not on the site you think you're on, right? So that could be what's going on too. It's right. just, we can't really tell from the question what's going on, but but the but the bottom line is SSL, real SSL is secure. If exactly, if the endpoints are authenticated, and I, you know, I keep using the A word, authentication, authentication, authentication. That's the key for so much of of what glues right. this together. Mike Smith writes from nearby Los Angeles. Steve has indicated several times he doesn't have a virus scanner installed on his Windows-based computer. Why is that? Is the performance improvement that much significant over running uh, uh, with virus uh, scanning in, in, on it? Or is it just because you're a macho tech guy who can spot dangerous email attachments from a mile away? Or have virus scanners essentially become obsolete since the days of everybody sharing floppy disks? Besides email attachments and Outlook email scripts, how do most viruses get on PCs nowadays? Well, I, I, I should, by oh, the way, say I don't run in general. I don't run an antivirus either. Or no, or a Leo, neither you or I do. Right. Um, and, and most I security was, experts I know don't. I, I know, and it, it, so it's you know here we are telling everyone run antivirus, yet we don't do it ourselves. Um, no force on earth could make me open an attachment I receive in email. <laughs> period. I mean, period. period. Really. It just it just doesn't happen. I I just I I know who's writing me email. I know when I'm expecting something. You know, you and I will talk, Leo, and I'll like I'll I'll send you a doc file. You know, it came from me. You you know, I, you know, I did. I opened this Microsoft Word document that you just sent me. Boy, I trust you. Yeah, and so I mean that's what it's about. But but 
other stuff i mean i've i've never had a virus infection on my machine except once when i was doing some virus research and i was sloppy and you know it 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 happened to me but in that case i was running on you know on a red machine on on a right. deliberate viral research machine not connected to anything else so i was prepared for that happening but um, I recommend people run antivirus if they want to run antivirus because certainly they're useful. They can catch bad things. And, and Lord knows, I mean, I'm seeing email that is full of this junk all oh, yeah. the time. I just don't touch it. Steve's a trained professional. Don't try this at home. By the way, there's another vector. You mentioned attachments, but there's another vector for viruses that, in fact, is very common. But you're not susceptible to that either. HTML email. Right. So if you're using Outlook or Outlook Express or Thunderbird or any email program that does HTML, displays a web page in the preview pane, uh, depending on how patched your Windows is and what exploits there are out there, that's also a vector of infection and has been in the past. Um, but, it, but but Steve rejects, actually rejects HTML email. I don't do that, but I just turn off the preview panes. Well, and I also have my uh, email reader. I, I'm still using Eudora, and one of the options is use the Windows viewer or use a text viewer. Right. And I just use a text viewer because, again, I don't need web pages being emailed to me. There's a third vector, uh, uh, which is less common, of virus infection, and that's worms, network worms. Uh, how do you avoid those? Um, it's the, it, essentially, I'm behind a very, very strong firewall. You know, you and I don't run personal firewalls, but we're both behind routers. Right. I'm behind multiple layers of, of routers. And so there's just no exposed open ports. Right. In fact, if you ran Windows built-in firewall, even that would be adequate to prevent Sasser and Blaster and Zotob and all these networks. Well, and, and that's why Windows XP After Service Pack 2 was released has really been doing a much better job. I mean, the, the exploits and the security problems we're seeing now with Windows are coding errors, buffer overflows that are, you know, seem to be in a never-ending stream. I mean, I'm, I'm not that unhappy that Vista has been delayed because it'll just be a whole new fiesta of, yeah. of, <laughs> of security problems. Let's get it right. Well, yeah, just and, like XP was in the beginning, and and of course uh, uh, there there is another uh, way that you can get viruses, and that is via fl via floppy. This is how we used to get it, you know, the micro, micro Angelo or Michelangelo Sneak, sneaker net. Yeah, where somebody would yeah. you accidentally boot to a floppy, but that those days are gone. I don't think you see those anymore. Um, you know what I would recommend, and I, and I think that I know you probably don't do this, Steve. Um, we don't run what we're saying. What, what I'm saying, anyways, I don't run an email scanner in the background all the time because i do feel that that slows me down and i know i'm not going to open an attachment but i think it's prudent once a week or once every few weeks to scan with a good antivirus to make sure you haven't accidentally caught something do sure you, do you ever do that um i have done it in the past when my system has gone a little strange I just mean, in that's, case that's the key for me is if something seems weird then it can cause me to just do a static scan of my system right the, the thing that is, is troubling is that now email has attachments saying this email scanned by such and such you know yeah. it's like okay well so anything <laughs> that was going to be a virus would just stick that on there <laughs> it's completely meaningless <laughs> oh yeah don't don't just don't open attachments i mean that even if you have 
an antivirus is just a bad idea. I mean, what if it's a virus that just came out and your antivirus hasn't got the signatures yet? And that's yeah, often now, the case. Uh, I, have, I have a friend who runs a, an embroidery shop that is, uses computerized embroidery, and they're constantly receiving pictures and patterns and data from people they don't know. Now, there's an example of a high-risk environment where you, it, it's reasonable to say, okay, we we you know we have to for our business open attachments from people we don't know. You can imagine like you know any sort of a graphic service is going to have to be doing this too. So there they want an isolated computer and and do the best job they can of making sure that what they open isn't able to spread through the network. And as a matter of fact, these people these friends of mine are constantly rebuilding their machines because they're just just overrun with viruses. Wow. You know what I like it too is. Uh, the, the kind of public health recommendations you get. For instance, there's a general public health recommendation to not eat too much sodium, to, to reduce the sodium in your diet. Well, in fact, the, the truth is that some people are genetically predisposed to high blood pressure due to salts, and some aren't. Some people don't have to worry about it. But right. you're never going to hear the health experts say, some people have to worry and some don't. It's, it's not prudent to say that. It's, it's much more prudent to say, just avoid salt. Uh, and, and wherever and you can, wherever you can. And because you yeah. don't know if you're, I guess, if you're susceptible. So we're kind of, I would say we're like health professionals, Steve, <laughs> avoid, avoid salt folks, even if you're not susceptible. Uh, Mike Smith, uh, I'm sorry, that was Mike. This is Willem from the Netherlands. And I do say, by the way, that we have some great listeners in the Netherlands, in Sweden, in the UK, all over the world. And we just love that. Willem says, I just listened to your podcasts about symmetric and asymmetric cryptography. I'm employed in the field of PKI, SSL, and user certificates. What does what PKI stand for? Public Key Infrastructure. Okay. So uh, most of the items are quite familiar. Note, I'm not an expert on theoretical crypto itself, but I'm more into the usage of PKI in corporate environments, the kinds of things we talked about last week with the, with the signing, things like that. Applied yeah, cryptography. Yeah, sort of, uh, exactly, applied cryptography. Yeah. Uh, there was a part where you talked about SSL, and that for every SSL session, a new symmetric key exchange is being done. Five or six years ago, I overheard something about the way Microsoft handles SSL connections. It seemed that Microsoft, well, IE in particular, does not renegotiate for every session but caches the session key for a period of time. That way, new sessions establish more quickly from your PC. On older hardware, of course, this would speed up your browser, but it might impose some security risks. Comments? Well, that's interesting, and it's a really great question. It turns out that this so-called SSL uh, session caching is part of the spec, and it's happening to all of us all the time, and it's not a problem. Um, to back up a little bit, just to, to review the way SSL um, Secure Sockets Layer, now called TLS, Transport Layer Security, the way this operates is it, it's a, it uses a, a public key system to, to exchange a randomly generated so-called session key. So, the, so when, you want to, when you're, your computer through your browser wants to connect to a remote web server, they negotiate a, a, a random number um, securely using public key systems like we talked about last week. And then they, they, they and this creates a so-called session key, which is the, the, which they then use for their symmetric encryption, which can be done very quickly. The problem is that this happens every time 
an SSL connection is established. That is, the endpoints go through this whole process. Well, as we talked about before, public key negotiation, the, the whole asymmetric key system, is a thousand times slower than, than the bulk symmetric key technology. So if connections are being set up on a server with, with you know, hundreds of thousands of clients, this can be a real problem. It's been a problem, in fact, so much that there are hardware accelerators which commercial web systems can employ to move some of this, of this brute force public key technology into hardware just to accelerate it. So it's really but, not to speed up com- the, the client computer, it's to speed up the server. Well, yes, it's because the you know both ends are doing a lot of work, but the but the real burden is on the server that is that is accepting web connections you know at at tens of thousands per minute right. from tens of thousands of end users. So, but but it, it still is a lot of work. So so in the SSL spec, they specifically have this idea of a session of a session ID which is different from the session key so and both ends will cache their keys so the idea is that if i'm for example contacting microsoft and i want i i establish a secure connection to them um, the we will go through the labor intensive time intensive public key system to establish a random secure session key and we associate that with a session id that is known the session key is kept private at each end so then if we drop the connection and then soon after reconnect for example i click on another link on on their secure site we don't go through building a whole new session key because we both have the one we obtained before in our own caches. So we say, hey, how about if we reestablish this session ID? But since no one else monitoring the, the connection would have known what that is because we each have it privately, each endpoint is able to say, oh, yeah, sure, let's keep using that one. And so, for example... The typical, I, the typical session key expiration is 10 hours, which may seem like a long time, yeah, no but, but, but it's, it's completely secret to each endpoint. So there's no security risk at all. There really is no security risk. It's, I mean, these keys are long. They're 128 bits, and as we know, that's 3.4 times 10 to the 34 different combinations so i mean there's plenty of combinations and no one is going to crack that that in a in a short period of time and then the the keys are always expired after their that that maximum length of time and a new key is renegotiated Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, matthew in normal illinois is worried i recently heard that the mozilla firefox browser plants spyware on your system i'm a loyal user of firefox and was wondering if there's any truth in this i would prefer not to have to switch back to internet explorer but i cannot continue to do this if it plants spyware on my system 
Well, no. that was a bit of an urban myth that went no. around recently. Yeah. I think spread um, by Microsoft. I don't. That's ridiculous. Well, there actually there was a there was a there was a, some sort of a weekly spyware newsletter uh, that that unfortunately had this as like a big bold <sighs> headline. Then the Register, the, the, you know, that that outfit in the UK yeah, picked it up. Known for their uh, journalistic integrity, uh, exactly. <laughs> and anyway, it scared a lot of people. So I wanted to because I saw this a number of times i wanted to make sure people knew that this was not the case there was it was just a complete mistaken uh you know basically completely false story you will get spyware checkers from time to time will report false positives microsoft's defender says for instance that spybot is a uh, or at least for a while said the spybot was a piece of spyware of course it's not it's a very good anti-spyware program and i i think that that's just you know, false positives. Well, and in, well, in fact, one of the reasons that that anti-spyware programs often claim that each other are anti-spyware is not any kind of an anti-competitive thing. It's that sometimes they have to contain the patterns right, right. themselves that they're looking for. So that's what in their seeing. in their own code right, exactly. Right. So it'll see a pattern that 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 it's it's looking for and say, wait a minute, this might be spyware. When in fact, it is anti-spyware. Now, Matthew might say, well, how can you be sure? The, the this is how you can be sure. Firefox is what we call open source. All of the source code, every bit of what Firefox is doing is available for your download and perusal. You can look at it. You can see exactly what it's doing. There's no part of it that is not completely exposed and visible. Now, you may not be able to read the code, but there are plenty of people who can, and I assure you there are thousands of eyes looking at this. And if there were the slightest hint of spyware in there, you would know about it. Yeah, it it would never happen. That's that's actually the beauty of an open source program. You can't really assert the same thing of a closed source program. Although that that does speak to making sure you get your programs from an authoritative source. For example, if you downloaded your copy of Firefox Mozilla or Mozilla Firefox from, you know, some random website well, somewhere, you really then have no knowledge what it really is. You want to make sure you always return to the source. That's where those MD5 hashes we were talking about last week come in handy. You can really validate that that's real. Well, exactly. But again, only if you're validating against a real MD5. Right. You could have a bad guy would create the bad MD5 and say, hey, here's my copy See? of Firefox. Download it and make sure. Right. Yeah. In fact, because it's open source, it would be fairly easy for somebody who was a bad guy to take Mozilla and add spyware code to it. As a matter of fact, Leo, many people through the years have asked me why I don't publish the source code for all of my freeware security utilities, and it's specifically for that reason. Even though somebody could certainly recreate the the look and feel of my stuff because it's really pretty simple they could do it from scratch i'm certainly not going to help anybody by giving them the source code (laughs) and then you know have 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 fraudulent copies of grc stuff floating around that's that's a very good point a very attentive listener dave chisman in the uk asks i have a slight confusion from the episode on asymmetric crypto you mentioned that a vulnerability with public key crypto was that the chosen text attack that is encrypting text with a public key in an attempt to work out the text. I'm confused. I thought you said the public key crypto was only used to encrypt the key for a symmetric crypto scheme. If that's the case, then the chosen text attack is surely as difficult as brute forcing the symmetric key, if not harder, as you have to guess every possible key that encrypted. Well, that's a good point. I loved his point. That's why I, I put it in here. He is absolutely right. So this is, and so just to restate what he said again, remember that that 
what I stated was that asymmetric crypto had a problem. Since, since one of the keys was public, you could potentially use the public key to feed in your own plain text and and see what the public key encrypted that to and then compare that to what somebody's unknown key had um had encrypted it to um i'm sorry i said that wrong um you could um uh you were trying to guess i'm sorry you were trying to guess a private key so and and you knew what the 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 private key had encrypted something too so you would be able to use what's known as as this this chosen plain text attack in order to to feed your your own stuff through um he makes the point that we as we know we only use asymmetric cryptography to encrypt a symmetric key um so so Essentially, we're, the, the, where we get confused here is I was talking not about the dual use of asymmetric and symmetric crypto, which does solve this problem exactly as, um, as David has suggested. I was sort of stepping back further earlier in my discussion of, of just pure asymmetric cryptography, noting that that's a problem that asymmetric crypto has because one of the keys is known, whereas symmetric cryptography doesn't have this problem because the symmetric key is always kept private. I mean, that's the only way it makes any sense. So really, this is an explanation of why PGP and these uh, other uh, crypto techniques use both symmetric and asymmetric. Well, actually, they, they use both because asymmetric is a thousand times slower oh, it's also so speed you, yeah, yeah yeah so you right. just can't afford to right. use asymmetric crypto on your whole message it's but so you, much faster even if you could it would be it would be open to this plain text cipher uh, cracking method yes you would it, that's a very good point right. and so the way that's resolved and i talked about this also in our asymmetric session is you add some random stuff right. to what you're encrypting that way nobody else can encrypt the same thing because they'll only know you know, like the part of what it might be that you are encrypting, not a bunch of other random bits, and that'll just completely throw them off. The but track. but it's kind of unnecessary because it is symmetric key we're using, right? I mean, right. So that even even there, there's no plain there. You cannot use this plain text crack on symmetric encryption, or because you you, ne- you know you, you can't, can't because you don't ever have the symmetric right. key. And that's that was David's point. You need to have right. Yeah, okay. Theodore, uh, our last our last question. Theodore Phillips from Chicago, Illinois asks, I now feel like I kind of understand public key cryptography. Well, except for one thing. I thought it was also very hard to determine what numbers were prime. Where does RSA get these two giant prime numbers that it uses? How does it know they're prime? How does it calculate them on the fly? I thought that was hard. Does it have a table with a lot of a lot of prime numbers? Does it go to a prime number warehouse on the web? While I know there are an infinite number of prime numbers, it seems like you'd need a lot of them handy uh, to make this work. If RSA only had a small pool, well, that would be a security issue. Yep, a really good point. Um, and a lot of people have wondered the same thing. They've wondered, okay, how, why couldn't you just, for example, pre-compute a whole bunch of prime numbers? And if you're relying on prime numbers being hard to factor, just try factoring with a whole bunch of prime numbers that you've figured out ahead of time. And the reason is 
there are too many prime numbers to do that. I mean, it's it turns out. But that how does it prime, find these base prime numbers to make this product a prime? It actually does compute them. It figures one um, out. Okay. Yes, and in fact, when I was uh, part of the process of setting up OpenVPN, that uh, we will be returning to when we talk about the GRC's OpenVPN guide. Part of the process is you build your own keys, hmm. and and you can see it. I mean, I'm using a a three gigahertz P4 with a gig of RAM. I mean, a really fast machine. It sits here putting dots on the screen, dot 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 dot, That's line after line after uh, line, while it does all the math to come up with its own primes. Right. So so it turns out that I mean, it's it's hard to create primes, but hard in this case is a relative term you know it's harder than adding numbers together but it's it's a problem that has been solved by the crypto guys so that machines are able to generate their own prize and you'd only have to you know you only have to do it once when you're creating the key you don't do it over and over again Exactly. It's a one-time thing. Now, it's interesting. I also created uh, what's called a Diffie-Hellman key pair as as part of this. And there, I wanted it to be, I wanted a 2048-bit key pair. That's also part of what OpenVPN uses. Um, I don't know how long it took. You went but to it bed. Was, <laughs> it, was like, it was like a day. Wow. I mean, it cranked and cranked and wow. cranked. So I mean, it, it, as these as as you tell it, you want longer primes. You got to be prepared to let that computer sit there and cook for a while for it to come up with a you know its own unique set of prime numbers. I wonder. I mean, you may remember in the early days of computing, we would benchmark with the Eratosthenes sieve. This the sieve of Eratosthenes. Yeah, yep. that, with the prime number generator. Um, but you know, I don't. I doubt they. There must be other algorithms for generating well, primes. Well, in fact, the uh, Wikipedia has a really great page on prime numbers. So if anyone's curious about this go to go to wikipedia or or just put in generate prime numbers into google and one of the first links is the link to wikipedia's page Hmm. where there's just a ton of really good information about prime numbers in fact in general uh wikipedia is a very good source on crypto and and all of these subjects there's a there's there are a lot of crypto experts who contribute to wikipedia and there's yeah i'm very impressed with their pages yeah they've really done a good job it's it's a very uh, definitive and i think reliable encyclopedia at least in that area on uh, on crypto, that bring back some memories. The old Aristotle, of Eratosthenes. Wow! Well, and, and remember, you uh, you you the way you do it is you you take a a big grid that is right. all full, right. and then you punch out every other one, then every third one, then every fourth one. Right. Well, actually, every fourth would already been punched out by every second. It's really and a, every... a brute force method of finding primes. You eliminate it's... non primes. Yep. And when you're all done, you end up with <laughs> ones that have not been punched out, or you, you know one ones that weren't evenly divisible by any of the numbers that came. Before, right. so I guess you'd make what a pool of like you know, thirty-two thousand uh, numbers and then eliminate them. Yeah, but we're to- we're dealing. Remember that when we're dealing with like one thousand twenty-four bit primes, That's and this a again, big prime. Here, well, we know how big it is. We did the math earlier: three point four times ten to the thirty-eighth. Wow. So, so that means we're talking ten. Okay. 38 digits, 38 decimal digits, wow. and there are, I mean, there are that many primes. So these are these are really, really big prime numbers, and our, our, our technology today has the ability to generate primes that are that size and know that they are primes. Eratosthenes would be proud. Proud, he, I tell you. 
he, he'd be he'd have a sore finger from punching out all the holes in his sieve. <laughs> Steve, we've had fun. This has been great. I love doing this every fourth episode. We answer your questions. Keep them coming, uh, and keep coming back because uh, another security now next week. We're going to continue. Uh, with crypto, but this is applied crypto. This is taking all the components that we've discussed in the last uh, four weeks and putting them together in all kinds of neat ways. For more information about our topic, for transcripts, and of course a 16 kilobit version for the bandwidth impaired, visit grc.com slash securitynow.htm also the home, of course, of Steve's wonderful SpinRite, the ultimate disk maintenance and recovery utility. Pays Steve's bills. Visit SpinRite info for more information. Well, and more importantly, if you know if you've got a computer which is hiccuping, uh, really, I, I would encourage people just to take a look at some of the testimonials oh, yeah. at spinright.info. That'll give people a sense for what Spinrite can do for them. And then, you know, if at any time in the future they're in trouble, consider Spinrite. Call, call Steve, GRC.com. And that's it for this edition of uh, Security Now. We'll be back next week. I hope you will, too. For Steve Gibson, I'm Leo Laporte. We'll see you next Thursday for Security Now. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. Security Now.